Well, yesterday, much of the world celebrated the wedding of Harry and Meghan. One clap. Okay, awesome. All right. This is America, I guess. And I hadn't paid too much attention to it. My wife and I had briefly chatted about it in the morning, and then uh, the Crasses invited us to uh, Long Hill Garden, and we met them there, let the kids kind of play so we could, you know, maybe get a couple minutes of conversation in. And uh, Keith just mentioned to me, hey, you know, the, the, the wedding address was absolutely amazing. So a guy by the name of Bishop Michael Curry, he's an American uh, bishop in the Episcopal Church, shared the address, I think it was about 14 minutes long. It was centered around the idea that love is powerful. And he talked about how love is the only thing that can make a broken world Right? The only, the only thing that can make a world gone wrong new. And amazingly, he's, you know, he stated that God is the source of love. He read from 1 John 4, you know, God is love, right? Love comes from God. And he even mentioned the name Jesus. Even he went so far as to say that he believed that Jesus walked on water, Right? but that he came and died to save us all. Isn't that incredible? Worldwide televised event. And he just kind of concluded talking about, you know, real love is sacrificial and therefore it is redemptive in the way that Jesus offered his life and therefore redeemed the world. And so love is the only thing that has the power to change the world. It was pretty amazing. And millions of people heard that message yesterday. Now, deep down, I think many, if not all of us, know that what he is saying is true. That love is what the world really needs. That love is the only thing that can change someone's life. Now, obviously, many people would debate the whole idea that, you know, the source of love is God or that, you know, Jesus walked on water or that he, you know, died to save all of us. But something in our core tells us that love is the way. It's the thing that we really want, and we know that it's the thing we all really need. Even the Beatles knew it, right? If that is so obvious, then what is the problem? What is it that prevents love from flourishing. If we know the world needs love, what is keeping us from living that out, the thing that we want and need above all else? What is it that could possibly sabotage our attempts at love? Maybe it'll surprise you. We're continuing our series today called uh, Hashtag Love is a Choice, where we explore the foundation for healthy relationships, because God is all about relationships. And we're we're going to be looking at the scriptures again today, obviously, but also integrating some themes from this book that we're encouraging you to read and discuss in our life groups during the week. And uh, I would just encourage you to grab a copy. We've got a few left out there. And if anybody was a graduate yesterday or this year, you can come grab this book right now. Free of charge. As long as your name is not Patrick Schumann. Because you got one last week. Anybody? Come on. 
Anybody else? I know you're going to get one. Okay, I could have sworn I saw. Come on, Sam. I knew I saw a couple people here today. There you go. Thanks. That could have been a really long, awkward moment, Sam, so thank you for rescuing me there. All right. So this week, to give you a little background, okay, we're going to be jumping into the book of Genesis. Last week, we looked at the life of Saul, who was the biggest victim of them all, right? We talked about how, hey, life is hard, love is hard, but I can do hard things through Christ who strengthens me, right? This week, we're going to be looking at another kind of life story here in the book of Genesis, a guy by the name of Isaac. You remember Isaac? son of Abraham, the promised son that Abraham had to wait like 25 years after God told him, and he was already 75 at that point, so he was like almost 100 when, when Isaac was born. Um, Abraham, obviously the father of the Jewish people, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we're going to pick up the story right after Isaac, one of Abraham's servants, has gone away to get a wife for Isaac and brought back this beautiful Rebekah. And they've become one. So we're picking up the story in Genesis 25, verse 19, if you want to read along. Okay? It'll also be on the screen, and you can please turn there in your Bible as well if you've got it. Okay? Genesis 25. All right, verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which possibly means hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, which means he grasps the heel or he deceives. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, I'm going to give you a couple minutes of reflection on this. Okay, i got a couple questions for you to answer. The first is, uh, what kind of family dynamics do you see at play here? 
both good and bad. And then secondly, what do you, what do you sense the author is highlighting? So you can take a second to scan that. Please talk to somebody else next to you if you feel, feel comfortable doing that, and I'll give you about two minutes, okay? Look it over again. What's the family dynamics at play? What does the author seem to be highlighting in this section? I'll give you two minutes, okay? Give you one more minute. What's the family dynamics going on? What's the author highlighting? Moses, the author. Okay, time's up. If you want to shout something out, go for it. Either of those questions. What do you see highlighted? What's the family dynamic? What's going on here? Favoritism. Big time. Favoritism. Unhealthy. Unhealthy. Parenting. Okay. I didn't catch that. Daddy issues. Okay. Anything else? Okay, so there's the favoritism of play. Jacob's kind of getting his identity wrapped up in that. Esau's possibly he's got an issue there too. There's somebody else that was interjecting. Yeah. Okay, impulsive decisions can be dangerous. Great. All right, so here's six things that, I, that I'm taking from this passage, okay? Good news. A husband prays for his wife. Praise the Lord. And the Lord answers. That's awesome, Okay. Number two, a mother asks God, not what is happening to me. Notice, it's not like there's not a word for what in the Hebrew. Why is this happening to me? Pick up on that? It's quite a a different question, okay? But God does answer that to her. Could be reading too much into that, but it's just interesting that it doesn't say what. It says why. A father favors one son, the mother favors the other. You guys obviously highlighted that one. There's competition amongst the brothers, Number five, one brother takes advantage of the other to get something that he wants. He manipulates. And then number six, it's so interesting that the son that is favored by the father despises his favored position as the older son who would get a double share of the inheritance. So in this case, if there's two boys, he would get two-thirds of the inheritance and Jacob would get one-third. That's a really interesting dynamic that's going on there that you'd think he would be like, okay, he's daddy's boy. He's going to be all about kind of protecting the father's, you know, goods. But there's something going on there, okay? So all that to say, in a short couple paragraphs, there is major family dysfunction here, right? Favoritism, competition, manipulation, and dissension between husband and wife. Awesome. This is the people of God. Great, okay? We're talking about the group that has been called by God 
and has a relationship with him and through whom all the earth is supposed to be blessed and they are a total mess, okay? Now here is the encouraging piece. God works with messed up, messy people, doesn't he? You cannot read the Bible and not catch that, right? The fact that anything good has ever happened in the history of our world outside of the life of Jesus is a testimony to that. Because he's the only one that's ever been perfect. And so anything else that anyone has ever done that's been loving in any way or increasing God's kingdom, those two things usually go hand in hand, had to happen by God working with messed up people. Jesus himself even came from a messed up family. We see that in the Gospels, right? He's misunderstood even by his parents, right? Or his mother and his brothers, right? He receives a little like rebuke by them at a certain point in the Gospel. Even Jesus was dealing with dysfunction even though he was not dysfunctional himself. Now just to throw it out there, as you're reading this book, I'm sure if if you haven't already, you would have caught this already, but the author Danny Silk, he says between him and his wife, and him, their parents had 15 marriages. His dad had three, his mom had three. Her dad had three, her mom had three, and then he had a step, I think it was his step, uh, one of his step parents that also had three marriages. God can work with messed up people. To come from that kind of a background and to get to the place where he is, where he's writing a book about relationships, God did some work, right? He can work with this. He can work with this. That's good news. That's good news. All right, let's keep going. 26. Now there was a famine in the land. Sorry, this is um, the next chapter here. I'm jumping one chapter ahead. I'm skipping a little section, and we're jumping into kind of what goes on with Isaac's life now. Verse 26 of the next chapter, 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. <clears throat> And Isaac went to Abimelech. He was on the scene before in Abraham's life. King of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Obviously talking about Jesus in the future. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of the place, this place, might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you, have, you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land the same year, reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. 
He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. All right, you got one more chance here. Two questions. One, what might be important to notice in God's speech? And two, what do you notice in this passage that might be a clue to the root of the family dysfunction? What do you notice in what God is saying? What do you see might be a root of the family dysfunction? I'll give you two minutes. You can talk to somebody or just kind of contemplate. Look at the passage again if you got it in front of you. Uh, one more minute. All right, you can start throwing it out there if you want. What do you got? Fear. Okay, fear. There is fear in this family, right? What else? Okay. Because he lied, right? Didn't trust God to protect him after, he, after God shows up and speaks to him. It might have even been audibly. We don't know. Okay, there's, there's a repeat deal going on here. Yep, so there's a, there's a huge statement of God's commitment to the family. Okay, so going back to the question we started with. What is it that prevents us from loving well? What stands in the path? What's sabotaging our relationships? There it is. Our familiar frenemy. Fear. Fear. And it's not a surprise, right? As someone just said, Isaac is doing just what his father did. Abraham tried to pull this stunt two times, and one of them was on Abimelech. If you remember that story... Abraham lies. Abimelech actually takes Abraham's wife Sarah as his wife. And before he seals the deal, uh, God shows up and says, if you you take her, you know, and sleep with her, I'm going to kill you and all of your people. And he's like, whoa, okay, I haven't laid a hand on her. I did not know. You know, don't blame me. And it also says that the women in that land were unable to conceive while, while this had happened. So Abimelech's like, hey, fool me once, right? Shame on me, fool me, no wait, fool me twice, shame on you, right? No wait, goes the way sorry, okay, you got it. So he's, he's out on the pursuit here, but the whole point is fear, right? It's fear, it says that he was afraid. Now, maybe I'm making too much of this, but I don't think so, because the, as I've said many times, the command that is repeated more often in the Bible than any other is do not fear. Do not be afraid. 
There's fear here. Fear is the enemy of love. I would argue that fear plays a part in most, if not all, dysfunction in relationships. Obviously, that is to say fear combined with our our sinful kind of willingness to go along with that, our own sin. As Yoda said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. He got that part right. Our fear is is often specifically about pain or loss, the pain that results from a loss. We don't like pain, so we do what we can to avoid it. And instinctually, this is a good thing, right? That whole fight or flight response that is kind of this animalistic part of who we are. Right? We see something scary, we go, right? We're ready to like, mm. the adrenaline starts pumping or it's like, Pew! right? You're running as fast as you ever knew, you know, more than you knew possible. And this is what animals do, right? If they, they usually run first, and if they can't, man, they, you don't want a corner like a raccoon, okay? It will put up a good fight. It's fight or flight. The problem is, when it comes to relationships, that is not a good response. It is actually, it is not helpful at all. Physically, right, fight and flight are typically, it's a good idea. But relationally, it is usually the case that you need to move towards the pain not running away from it or fighting. We are not just animals. We are made in God's image. But we often react instinctually like we would for something physical when it's emotional instead of training ourselves to respond in love. And this is how it usually goes, our our two responses. Okay, flight. We've been hurt in some way, wounded. Okay, maybe a bad breakup. Maybe something, with our, something our, our father or our mother did to us or said to us. Maybe it was a, a close friend that betrayed us. And so when we're hurt, we run. We shield ourselves from being hurt again by putting up walls and keeping people at a safe distance. I'm never going to let someone do that to me again. The problem is those walls also keep us from having an intimate relationship with anybody else. They keep us from having a meaningful and deep relationship with people. And so one thing that often goes along with that is we allow people to control us. Because we're not going to let our true cards show. Our true opinions, our true feelings of who we really are because they might be rejected or we might be insulted or hurt again. So oftentimes, if we take the pose of running from things, we become someone that gets involved in a controlling type of relation, excuse me, relationship. I won't let you hurt me by not letting you close to me, by not letting you see the real me. And when we're not our real selves, we often can be controlled. The second response is fight. This is the one that's usually more obvious. We control other people so that they won't hurt us. We've been wounded in a deep way, and so we say, you know what? I'm just going to control and manipulate around me so that that never happens again. Aggressive, passive-aggressive, either way the idea is, I won't let you hurt me, so I will control or manipulate you so that I am safe and taken care of. All of this is in the effort to avoid pain. 
It's a fear of pain that causes us to keep people at a distance or to try to control and manipulate them. So what? The same result, we won't be hurt again. And so fear of pain rules our life. And we see these things, we don't have time to read all these chapters that follow, but these play out in the lives of Jacob and Esau. Again, Isaac learns fear maybe from Abraham. He, was, he wasn't born before Abraham did those, you know, those two times that he lied. He wasn't even born yet, but obviously fear was there. And Jacob and Esau have this crazy dynamic. Jacob lives a passive, aggressive, manipulator life. His next trick is to steal Esau's blessing, kind of like what we just did for the kids. That was a really important thing that was like a one-time event where the father would bless them, and he, he pretends he's, he's Esau, and he gets the blessing for the older son when he's really the younger, and then Esau comes in and is like, what happened? Don't you have a blessing for me, right? And so Esau's the aggressive one. He's the hunter. He's the hairy guy. You know, like he's a man's man. He wants to fight. He has it in his heart to kill Jacob. So he's doing kind of his deal there. Jacob runs away. Often there's a mix of fight and flight here emotionally as we respond. Then he aligns himself with his uncle Laban, who's another manipulator. And they have this manipulator battle until ultimately Jacob runs away. And again, running from the problem, okay? Just interestingly enough, the moment that that really changes Jacob's life is when this man approaches him in the night, right before he's going to meet his son Esau. And what happens? They fight. That's so interesting. Jacob's always running, manipulating, but when he stands up, in this sense, I'm not saying fighting is always the right thing, but somehow there's something in there that's broken and God gives him the new name of Israel. But, again, he's reunited with his brother, and then he lies to him. He says, yeah, I'll follow you along. Just go on ahead of me. And then he goes to a different town. Still, still the deceiving, still the lies, avoiding relationship. And then the cycle plays out in his family. You, most of you probably have heard the story of Joseph. Pretty dysfunctional family. Again, favoritism plays out for Joseph. And then later on, Benjamin. Brothers conf- conflict to the point of like wanting to murder Joseph. Both of these reactions prevent real relationships. I'll read you something from uh, this book, Keep Your Love On. We surround ourselves with safe people, people who are like us, think like us, behave like us, so that we won't be challenged. And on a societal level, oppression, injustice, racism, war, and most other social evils can be traced back to the intrinsic fear of people who are different. On a personal level, fear-based reactions cause most misunderstandings and hurt in relationships. Guys, if we're going to have deep friendships, marriages, relationships with kids, coworkers, right, neighbors, we have to get rid of fear and learn instead of reacting with fight and flight to respond with love. And here's the good news. We know now that life is hard, but I can do hard things. Because Christ gives me strength, and therefore, as a powerful person, you can respond with love in the face of pain and fear. This, this, that line was from Danny, and so is this. A powerful person says, I am going to be okay no matter what you do. You can hurt me, but you cannot make me turn my love off. I am relentlessly going to do what I have to do to protect my connection with you no matter what. That is a powerful person that refuses to let their life be ruled by fear. I was driving here this morning and passed a billboard that I often pass. 
And the first line was, pain makes you miserable. And I said, no way. That's a victim line. Nothing can make me feel anything. Pain hurts. But it cannot make me miserable. Pain is a part of life. One day, Jesus will get rid of all of it, right? It says in Revelation, there will be no more pain. Amen! But until that time, we do not make decisions based on what is the least amount of pain that I can go through. What is the maximum amount of comfort? Because that leads to a very safe, walled-off existence or controlling and manipulating. We have to let go of the fear of pain. We cannot live a full life when we let fear of pain run the show instead of a commitment to connection. We must make decisions not based on what will lead to the most comfort and least amount of pain, but what will lead to the greatest flow of love and the greatest amount of connection. Because that's what life is all about. We're created for connection. God is all about relationships. So how do we break the cycle of fear? How do we learn to respond with love instead of react with fight or flight? Well, here's what stuck out to me, one thing about that passage, and I try to emphasize it as I read. But God's speech says, I will be with you. Let me read the rest of this chapter. Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You've become too powerful for us. Isaac moved away from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, where the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley, discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Essek, which means dispute, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna, opposition. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth Room, meaning now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. They're sticking it out despite all this opposition. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not... Harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we have found water. He called it Sheba, which means seven or oath. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba, well of the oath or well of the seven. Over and over again in the Bible is repeated that with that command, do not fear or do not be afraid, is this statement, I am with you. Be strong and courageous. This is Deuteronomy. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. I will fear no evil, 
Come on, Psalm 23, you know it. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? I will fear no pain, for you are with me. I will fear no hurt, for you are with me. It is the presence of God, knowing that God is with us, that allows us to go through even horrible pain. We have a choice. We do not need to give in to fear. The antidote is knowing that God is with us. Now let's fast forward one generation. I mean, we're talking about Isaac, so now I guess it's two if I'm talking about Joseph. Who breaks the cycle of fear and dysfunction in the family of God? It's Joseph. And do you know what line is repeated over and over again in that narrative? But the Lord was with Joseph. And you know what? He knew it. There is no way he went through what he went through without just abandoning this whole deal of trying to live a righteous life and follow God if he didn't know that God was with him. As a slave sold away, and then boom, even worse, now he's put in jail in the pit of that dungeon for years. He got through it because he knew that God was with him. The presence is the antidote to pain. The presence of God. God's not promising us a pain-free life. What he's calling us to is to say, you're strong enough to make it through this and to still love in the process. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I shared this last week. And that's not because we can just sit back and be like, oh, you know, everything's going to be easy. It's because he is making us strong to carry the yoke along with him. A lot of stories you could tell to illustrate this. I mean, the one that comes to mind in the forefront is just Corey Ten Boom. To see, you know, your family killed at the hands of the Nazis, to be in one of these death camps, and to make it through on the other side, still praising Jesus, and moving forward in love to the point when later on in her life, when she's confronted by a guard that was horrible while she was in that prison camp and to be able to forgive and to live the life of love even to your enemies. She had to know that God was with her. That she wasn't alone. And who ultimately broke this open for us but Jesus We have a God that didn't just stand up there and and just kind of throw some stuff down to help us with our problems, but entered into the pain of this world. We have a God that knows what your suffering is like. 
because he suffered, because he was terribly betrayed, misunderstood. I mean, apart from all the physical horror of crucifixion, the emotional just horror that he went through as well when everyone deserted him and one of his best friends denies him three times that no one stood with him. That's our God. That's our God. We have a God that is with us. And Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus came that we would know forever that God is with us. That everywhere we go, when we put our faith in Jesus, we say, God, I need forgiveness. And he grants it to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that he puts his spirit in us, that we would be able to sense his presence, especially in those times that are darkest, and know that he's with us and that that is enough. And that because of that, we can say no to fear and live a life of love. So last week, let's have the band come back up. I left you with a a truth and a challenge. The truth was just, hey, life's hard, but I can do hard things. And the challenge was gratitude. That gratitude breaks a victim mentality. When we're thankful, it moves us out of complaining, out of a victim idea, out of that triangulation of like victim, there's the bad guy, here's my rescuer, this weird manipulative dynamic that we get into relationships, gratitude can start to break that cycle because we move away from complaining about our life and we say, I'm a powerful person. With God's help, I can do powerful things. So the challenge was, hey, establish a rhythm of gratitude in your days. The truth this week is, I will not fear pain for you are with me. I will not fear pain for you are with me. It's a declaration to say over yourself. Right? God's presence is the antidote to pain. And the challenge is, hey, when you sense that you're in a place where you're going to react out of fear, either aggressively because you're afraid of being hurt, oftentimes it's subconscious, or passive aggressively, remind yourself that God is with you. Pause and just say, okay, God, you're with me. I don't have to continue that cycle. I can break that cycle. I'm a powerful person because I have the Holy Spirit in with me and you can choose to respond in love. Let's pray. So Lord, we need help because we're often afraid. You say that, Lord, perfect love casts out fear. So we're asking, Lord, we need your presence. We need to feel your love. We need to know it in our mind and in our heart. Would you move us forward, Lord, to knowing we don't have to live in subjection to fear of being hurt, we can open our hearts and say, I'm committed to connection. I'm committed to relationships. I will do whatever it takes to love and I will not back down. Thank you, God. So come, Holy Spirit, right now. Help us engage with you. Help us to feel your presence. I'm asking, Lord, that we would feel your presence in this room tangibly right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's stand and engage with the Lord for one more song. Then we'll close. Thank you, God. Thank you.